0: Mystery Podcast appears where we discuss mysteries, histories, and occasionally conspiracies. I'm your host, Ollie. And I'm your co-host, Belle. Today, we will be discussing the Tunguska event, a mysterious explosion in 1908 in Siberia.
1: Today's trigger warnings are explosions, brief mentions of animal deaths, meteor strikes, and some truly wild conspiracy theories. I can't wait. <laughs> I am so excited. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the sole views and opinions of Belle and Ollie with a Wild Mystery Podcast appears. These views are not intended to harm, offend, defame, slander, or negatively represent any individuals involved in a case.
0: Hey guys, we wanted to quickly pimp out our social media because we realized not everybody realizes we have things like TikTok or an Instagram or a YouTube. So, you can follow us on TikTok at Awampa_Podcast. podcast. Or
1: on Instagram and YouTube, just at a wild mystery podcast appears. Be sure to also check us out on com, yeah. Where you can find basically all of the podcatchers. <laughs> but we are also,
0: we're on Anchor, there. Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Radio, Podcasts, Pandora. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Pretty much, pretty much if everyone. there if there's Spotify, one stitcher. If there's one that we've missed, reach out to us and let us know so we can go ahead and work on getting it on there as well.
0: Yeah, but wherever you prefer to get your podcast, check us out there. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. That's pretty much it. <laughs> we put our Twitter on hold. If it ends up getting Not being owned by a dick bag. Yeah, then maybe we'll come back, but we'll update you then. So quick disclaimer, Tunguska, Tunguska, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's Tunguska.
1: I feel like I've heard it referred more to as Tunguska than
0: any other. Because it is a Russian location, that makes more sense in the Russian language, Tunguska. So that's where I'm I'm at. I'm with you. (laughs) You know, okay. So this event is also called the Tunguska Impact or the Tunguska Explosion. Uh, I generally, I think, refer to it as the Tunguska event in this, but just as a heads up, if you do more research it occurred near the I'm sorry to Russia, (laughs) the Podkaminaya Tunguska River which translates roughly to stony Tunguska Um, The location is kind of like a sparsely populated northern taiga, which is a type of forest that is kind of like between the tundra and the temperate forest. So it's basically it's what we've got in Alaska. Like the we have taiga. It's basically a a northern forest.
1: <laughs> gotcha. Okay. In present day
0: Krasnoyarsk Krai, in Siberia. Why do you do this to yourself? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I should be practicing the pronunciations, but I'm not. <laughs> So it is. Um, this area is populated by the indigenous Venki and Ket people, and also Russian settler settlers at the time. There were several villages in the area, including Vanavara, the Solomoy settlement, and the Podkomenaya Tunguska village. So on June 30th, 1908, between 7.14 and 7.17 a.m., it was a warm summer morning. Uh, Sergei Semenov, a farmer in Vanavara, was having breakfast at a trading post when he later said, quote, Suddenly in the north, the sky was split in two, and high above the forest, the whole northern part of the sky appeared covered with fire. At that moment, there was a bang in the sky and a mighty crash. The crash was followed by a noise like stones falling from the sky or of guns firing. The earth trembled. Sergei was thrown 20 feet from his chair and, quote, felt a great heat as if my shirt had caught fire, end quote. Wow. Yeah. So 20 feet, which, okay, sorry, one second. 20 feet is about six meters, a little over six meters. (laughs) The impact um, was about 40 miles or 64 kilometers from Sergei. Witnesses as far as 900 miles or 1,500 kilometers away described a fireball or bright column of light, almost as bright as the sun streaking across the sky. This light lasted about a minute and seemed to flatten as it neared the horizon. Some described the light as a flying star with a tail that disappeared into the air as they watched. It appeared two to three times larger than the sun. So that's just like, you know, location of it versus the sun. Mm And there were a lot, like, a lot of different people reported different colors, but generally they were, like, red to bluish white. Some people just saw the a pillar of fire and smoke rising from the horizon. And even in London, some reported a flash of light and plaster falling. London, England, I mean. <laughs> Not that there are many other Londons. I getcha. So generally, there was a light... Followed by sounds like artillery, fire, and in some places as much as ten minutes were between the light and the sounds. The sounds were also described like peals of thunder, followed by eight loud bangs like gunshots. Wow. So just like, quick note about the, the difference, the time difference between the light and the fire that just, like lightning and thunder, represents the difference between the speed of light and the speed of sound. Mm -hmm. So the farther away that people were from the event, the longer it was between when they saw the light and heard the sound. Yep. So this, the sounds were followed by trembling ground and hot winds strong enough to throw people down and shake buildings as in an earthquake. That quote is from Encyclopedia Britannica. The shockwave broke windows in a town 35 miles or 60 kilometers away. It registered with barometers as far away as England, in some places measuring a 5.0 on the Richter scale, and the shockwave circled the earth twice. Wow. Yeah, the Ket people described the light coming from the west, deer fleeing away, and wind strong enough to knock down trees. NASA Science says, quote, dense clouds formed over the region at high altitudes which reflected sunlight from beyond the horizon. The Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, um, there's one in Massachusetts and one in Hawaii. I wasn't sure which one it was, but probably Massachusetts, I'm assuming. And the Mount Wilson Observatory in LA measured a sharp decrease in atmospheric transparency lasting months this was probably due to the dust particles suspended in the air after the blast.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hundreds of reindeer, which were the livelihoods of the local herders, um, were killed or, at the very least, were thrown into the air. There were no evidence of people killed, but there are some. There's some talk of three deaths. Um, the sky, also, this is super weird. <laughs> the sky glowed at night as far away as England and Asia. Hmm. Um, it was, this effect was compared to the atmospheric effects following the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa uh, some witnesses in England and Asia said that they could read the newspaper at night outside with no artificial light <laughs> um, and this glowing sky was also accompanied by brilliantly colored sunsets and massive silvery clouds some of the Ket people said that the brightness of the sky preceded the event by at least one night. Uh, trees were also flattened in an approximately 830 square mile or 2,000 square kilometer area most of mostly inhabited, uninhabited forest land. Trees were charred more than 40 square miles or 100 square kilometers in radius. And the heat damaged crops around Vanavara, So these friggin' villagers, like, were kind of fucked by this whole thing. Yeah, no shit. The impact was known by locals to be near the stony Tunguska River in central Siberia, um, an unpopulated swampy taiga area. Newspapers at the time reported that it may have been a volcanic eruption or a mining accident, or even an asteroid or comet impact. No one visited Ground Zero for decades, and eyewitness accounts were only collected two to five decades afterwards, and mostly, cons- or you know, mostly consisted of secondhand oral accounts. Really? Yeah. So while we digest how this massive fucking thing could happen, and then nobody investigates it for twenty years, <laughs> um, let's take an ad break. So the volcano or mining accident theories were pretty quickly ruled out due to a lack of physical evidence. Um, Researchers instead concluded that an object collided with the earth, but there were no pictures of the asteroid, the crater, and nobody found any fragments. So Don Yeomans was a manager of the Near Earth Object Office at NASA's Jet Jet Propulsion Center. He described This event as, quote, the only entry of a large meteoroid we have in the modern era with first-hand accounts, end quote. So clearly, we know where most scientists land on what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) The first scientific expedition uh, was 19 years after the event in 1921. It was led by Leonid Kolkin And I'm sorry here, this, like, in every article, this man... Was described as a different type of scientist and as connected to a different university. <laughs> so. Great! Yeah.
1: I love he, those. Those are I so know. fun.
0: <laughs> so he may have been a geologist, mineralogist chief, or a chief curator for meteorite collection. And he may have been working at the Mineralogical Museum of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, the St. Petersburg Museum, or the Russian Meteorological Institute. <laughs>
1: I mean, he could have been all three. Yeah. possible. 100% possible. So he discovers
0: the reports of a... Or reports of a meteorite found
1: near the town of Kansk. (laughs) You know me. I try really hard not to read ahead anymore. (laughs) But that one was tough, yeah. (laughs) That one, it was just right there. Sorry. So, uh, this actually turned out to just be a rock. So, (laughs) I just ah, yeah, we found this really cool meteorite. <laughs> nah, dude, it's yeah. a rock. So, but this, the reports of it,
0: um, he was able to use the reports to gain, like, get the funding to go to the site mm. um, to discover that it was just a rock. <laughs> um, he still believed that the event was a meteor, so he wanted to go to the site of the impact to find a crater... You know the object, whatever, but the harsh conditions of the area prevented them from reaching ground zero in that first
1: exhibition or expedition. <laughs> um, the hold yeah. on. I apologize. I have questions. Questions. But I need math mathicals to back me up. So the first expedition actually occurred thirteen years later, but they. Oh, I didn't do math right. But the actual expedition to the to zone rigid, itself yes, was, was 21 years. Sorry. I was like looking at that and I was like, mm, that math ain't math. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the next expedition was in 1927, also by led by Culkin. Um, this time they took some local guides and then used I mean, they were hunters, but they use you know, they hired them as guides <laughs> mm-hmm. and used horses and then sleds pulled by reindeer to reach the site of the impact, which I added because that is swell. <laughs> sleds pulled by reindeer. <laughs> I enjoy that. Fantastic. Yeah. Love it. So the guides uh, pieced out when they got close. And this is part of the reason why it took so long to reach ground zero. The locals believed that this event was a visitation was, quote, a visitation by the god Ogdi, who had cursed the area by smashing trees and killing animals, end quote. That was also via NASA. Okay. So this god is, you know, variously in English spelled Ogda,
1: Ogda, or Ogdi. So O-G-D-A,
0: A-G-D-A,
1: or O-G-D-Y. He was a god
0: of thunder... Um, the belief of the Evenki was that he was punishing them for internal disputes. And thus they proclaimed the blast site a sacred space and guarded it, which, again, is part of why it took so long for anybody to reach ground zero. Because they were not about to tempt him again, which I think is fair if that's your belief. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I would also be like...
1: Yeah, like, sorry, dude. We'll behave now.
0: So the epicenter of the blast was a marshy bog where nothing was really growing. They found plenty of evidence. Um, about 80 million trees were on their sides in a butterfly-shaped radial pattern with their trunks essentially pointing to
1: ground zero. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just like a standard blast effect. If you have a center yeah. point and it expands from there you're going to lose power at certain points. So yeah. whichever way they're blown, obviously the tip of the tree is what's going to go over and the trunk is going to more than likely stay in the ground. So the trunk or is at going least to pull point. out, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if we go over to our pictures, first of all, there is, I am going to be posting a map of Russia and kind of where it happened. So the, um, there are also a couple pictures of the trees on their sides that we can see, which these guys were taken on that second expedition, so in 1927, almost 20 years after. So there are, you can see that some trees
1: are still growing, but. Well, I have a fun fact to share about this that I didn't know about trees, but it's fucking terrifying. So there are, so trees, and once you'll see when we post these photos, is that most of the trees, we'll call it a good 85 to 90, like, 4%. are are down, Mm -hmm. with very few still standing. Now, I fully believe that they started down, but when trees are blown over, if the roots are still intact, motherfucking trees can snap back into place. Did you know that shit? I didn't. Have you ever watched that? Because it's horrifying. (laughs) Because there's so much water, they expand. And then when it, like, they just, like... Retract and snap back into place. It's really fascinating. That's
0: really cool We're gonna be learning a couple of fascinating tree facts today.
1: Oh, lovely! so <laughs> I'm happy to add that
0: one Yeah, for free <laughs> add that to the list. So uh, Yeomens who is again the NASA jet propulsion manager um, said Quote, later when the team arrived at ground zero, they found the trees there standing upright, but their limbs and bark had been stripped away. They looked like a forest of telephone poles, end quote. Hmm. So this effect requires, quote, fast moving shockwaves that break off trees branches before the branches can transfer the impact momentum to the tree's stem. That's from NASA Science, which I found that very interesting. So you can actually see in these pictures Mm -hmm. that the trees that are clearly dead, but are still standing, they don't got branches. (laughs) Ain't no branches on them trees. No. So basically the shockwave was so fast that it blew off the branches before the tree had a chance to fall over. (laughs) But that was really only like, it happened especially close to the epicenter, Mm -hmm. farther away, it just knocked over trees. Yeah. So years later, the same effect was found at a different explosion site—the um, site of the atomic bombing at Hiroshima. There were um, lots of potholes in the bogs that were at first assumed to be craters, but testing and draining found that none of them were.
1: Which is funny because my mm-hmm. assumption would be is like that plant—that some plant had gone grown there and just got like blown the fuck away. I would not have assumed a <laughs> meteor.
0: Yeah, but basically, at the end of the day, they found all this shit in this, you know, remote, uninhabited forest. They did not find an impact crater or meteorite fragments. Mm-hmm. So, the last expedition, also by Culkin, was in 1939. This included an analysis of soil where they found globules with nickel, copper, cobalt, and geranium. Many of them were fused together by the high temperatures, which probably reached up to 30 million degrees Fahrenheit or 17 million degrees Celsius. Hmm. That's pretty high. Yeah. I don't think my brain can quite quantify that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't. I've been in temperature, I've been in like over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but that's like (laughs) it. Yeah. So this was, this, these findings were similar to the sites of other meteorite strikes. Which, you know, strengthened the opinion that it was a meteorite strike. Mm-hmm. So these theories, I'm going to kind of split them up into two theories. The theories are it was a meteor or it was not a meteor. <laughs> so we're starting with that it was a meteor. And I'm using, this probably isn't the most scientific thing to do, but I'm kind of using meteor in this as like an umbrella term to include mm-hmm. meteor, comet, asteroid. <laughs> Which apparently there is a difference, but it's, it's a, it's a difference that I, as somebody who has not really studied space that much, don't know that I fully understand.
1: (laughs) Basically, like, from, and I'm sure I'm going to be wrong, so hopefully. I kind of wrote it down, so we'll, we'll test you. (laughs) Because, like, so my thing is, I believe a meteor is, like, meteor versus, like, meteorite is it's, like, when it's, um is based on size, I believe if I remember I correctly. Think... And then comet is one that like passes by but does not actually like go through our atmosphere and then asteroid honestly still not 100% sure on that. It did cuz right. the comet it's like it's something that it's moving through on a relatively consistent pattern yes. um, within the galaxy and an asteroid is just kind of like there. But uh-huh. then a meteor or a meteorite is something that actually go- comes through the atmosphere and it's actually... It's kind of in an orbit. Yeah. Yeah. And then eventually it'll um, fall into the atmosphere,
0: mm-hmm. make
1: entry, and then based on the size, it's either a meteor or a meteorite. Yeah. I believe. I think. But I took astrology yeah, I a really, really long time ago. <laughs>
0: I kind of wrote down the basic difference between asteroids and comets later on so that we have a basic understanding. So, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So on February 15th, 2013, in Chelyabinsk, Russia, um, about which is about 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers west of the Tunguska impact site, a meteor about the size of a five-story building broke apart 15 miles or 24 kilometers above the ground. Wow. This generated a shockwave about equivalent to a 550 kiloton explosion, blew out about a million windows, and injured about 1,000 people. But it was not enough to knock down trees or structures. <laughs> Crazy. This is wild. It was a big break in the Tunguska case because it allowed for more accurate modeling of the event. So Yeoman said, quote, The general agreed upon theory is that on the morning of June 30th, 1908, a large space rock about 120 feet across entered the atmosphere of Siberia and then detonated in the sky. It is still referred to as an impact event, even though it wouldn't have actually hit the ground, which is
1: interesting. Mm hmm.
0: And then after Chelyabinsk, the size of the object was revised to be about 164 to 262 feet, or 50 to 80 meters in diameter. It was estimated to have entered the atmosphere at about 34,000 miles per hour, or 55,000 kilometers per hour. Weighed about 220 million pounds, or 100 million kg. Kilograms. Yeah, kilograms. <laughs> it heated the air around it to about 44,500 degrees Fahrenheit, or 24,000 degrees Celsius. And between fifteen and 30,000 feet, or 5 to 10 kilometers above the ground, a combination of the pressure and heat caused the asteroid to fragment, basically just exploding. This produced a fireball, releasing the equivalent of about 185... Times the energy of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, or the equivalent energy of as much as 15 megatons of TNT. Damn. Yeah. This theory explains the lack of impact crater the asteroid was consumed in the explosion. The dense clouds that formed afterwards over Europe and Asia were likely noctilucent clouds, which are silvery and bluish white, and are usually visible on summer nights in high latitudes, which perfectly fits (laughs) this mm -hmm. scenario. Encyclopedia Britannica says that these clouds, quote, often exhibit a tenuous wavy pattern that indicated the existence of strong winds at that altitude, end quote. It's basically, these are ra- rare clouds that form at higher altitude than any other cloud form. About 50 miles or 82 kilometers. Wow. <laughs> they are likely formed by ice crystals and dust from meteor smoke.
1: Hmm.
0: So. <laughs> this, these clouds are used to theorize that a comet was the cause of the explosion. So, one source of contention in the scientific world is whether this was caused by a comet or an asteroid. So the difference. (laughs) Asteroids tend to be rocky and orbit the sun a little bit closer to the earth um, and they have a higher likelihood of crossing earth's orbit. While comets are made of ice and dust, may orbit the sun, but don't have to. But basically they have long-term orbits and eventually return they would strike the Earth at a greater velocity than asteroids. So some of the stuff that points towards it being an asteroid is an asteroid would, like it would be, the largest asteroid impact in recorded history if it was an asteroid. (laughs) A 2001 study showed an 83% probability that the object came from the asteroid belt and followed an asteroid-like trajectory. The only remains that were found that could be part of the object were tiny shards, rocky, less than one millimeter across each, and that points to an asteroid. If it was an asteroid, the radiant energy from the blast would be enough to ignite forests, but the blast wave that followed that would then extinguish the fire, which would result in charred trees but no sustained fire. So no forest fire. But charred trees, which there were. <laughs> right. So the comet, some things that point to it being a comet. In 1930, British astronomer F.J.W. Whipple proposed that it was even the comet ENCKE. I'm sorry. E-N-C-K-E. <laughs> um, the glow could have been from the comet's tail. Critics say that the comet would have disintegrated too fast because it was made of ice. But proponents say, quote, it could have been an extinct comet with a stony mantle that enabled it to remain intact until it reached the lower atmosphere, end quote. Slip from the American Physical Society, or APS. Uh, This was the favored theory, at least in Russia, for a while after the event. I'm not 100% sure about that theory that it could have been an extinct comet, (laughs) but who knows?
1: (laughs) I mean, I mean, like. If it exploded in Earth's atmosphere, it is extinct. (laughs) But. (laughs) I think basically what they mean is like, so comets are typically revolving in an orbit. So if a comet dies, it's no longer orbiting and it's just there. And so therefore it becomes an extinct comet. Okay. I believe.
0: Another source of scientific contention is what was this body made of? Uh, The NASA theory rests on that it was a stony asteroid. But many other people felt that a comet made of ice made more sense because it would completely dissolve in the blast, leaving dust behind, thus the noctilucent clouds. Um, but it doesn't necessarily fit the reconstruction of the event that, you know, a comet.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: because the icy body would have lasted or it wouldn't have lasted as long as this object would need to. There is a theory by a group of scientists, including Daniil Krenikov at the Siberian Federal University, published in 2020, that it was an iron asteroid.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: So this group of scientists, um, modeled a bunch of different scenarios, exploring that it was made of rock, ice, or iron, um and they proposed that iron was the most likely. Uh, This would involve the object entering the atmosphere at a shallow angle, grazing the earth, and then passing back into space. The meteorite would be about the size of a football field, um, 656 feet or 220 meters wide. Passed through the upper atmosphere, heated rapidly, and then passed out again. The shockwave would have flattened trees, caused an explosion of about the right magnitude, and any vaporized iron would have condensed into dust and be indistinguishable from terrestrial iron, not visible when just looking at the ground. No, asteroid fragments would have been left behind, obviously, and it Mm -hmm. supports the noctilucent cloud formation as well, meaning that the asteroid, like, basically, the asteroid would lose mass in its adventure here, but it wouldn't Explode, you know? If the object did graze the earth, then it must... Like, this is what they said. That if the object did graze the earth, it must have been iron. Because rock or ice couldn't have lasted that long. long. If it's true, then things could have gone way worse for us on this day. (laughs) Because if it was a direct impact, it would have left the... a crater 2 miles or 3 kilometers wide and would have had catastrophic effects on the biosphere, devastated Siberia and perhaps
1: ended modern civilization. And when you say like you mean like the entirety of modern civilization, not just yeah. like localized. <laughs> Not just Russia. I mean everywhere. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So
0: some say that the lack of crater means that it Couldn't have been iron, which would lean towards a stony asteroid. A 2013 analysis of fragments and samples from the area showed high levels of material common to rocky asteroids, but also supported the iron theory. I don't know what that means, but I'm not an astronomer. (laughs) So... I wondered about testing the soil for the presence of iron in comparison with areas outside of the possible path of the object. Mm -hmm. Samples were taken of the soil, rocks, and trees in the area. There was a presence in the soil of, quote, impact-related materials like nanodiamonds, metallic, and silicate spherules. That's from Forbes. (laughs) And I'm sorry that I probably just decimated that word. (laughs) Chemical analysis, though... Was not possible due to contamination from local minerals, which I actually found pretty interesting. I think that there were um, essentially—I'm way dumbing this down because I didn't fully understand it—but I think that some of the rocks in the area were magnetic, so over time they contaminated the samples oh, yeah, and they couldn't, that you makes know. Sense. So, just as an additional couple of points here, Leonid Colkin may have been the first person to propose that the object had exploded in midair, and he may have even speculated that it was made of iron. The An asteroid, comet, or meteor would not explain if the glowing size predated the event, but some people propose the two events may be unrelated. I do not think that this is very likely. <laughs> yeah. Like, if we're gonna go... um. The simplest solution.
1: Yeah. Occam's then, razor.
0: Yeah. If we're going to go Occam's razor on this, they probably were related.
1: <laughs> well, and I think it's like really interesting because I mean, sometimes, and I, I really agree with you here because it's like the simplest solution is often, you know, mm-hmm. because it's like, you know, they're talking about, you know, my, my, the glowing might have predated timing wise. Sometimes it makes you wonder, did they factor in what time it is someplace else? Yes. Because that, some sometimes I feel like people forget to like factor in like yeah. time conversion. Additionally
0: the the fact that most of the the um oh my god. The uh like the accounts of the event, mm-hmm. first of all, mostly secondhand oral accounts mostly got mostly were con like were collected. This is interesting, I didn't actually mention this earlier were not collected in the first expedition because nobody would really talk about it to Colkin. He found he found it tough to get people to tell him about what happened. Really? Yeah. But by the time of the second expedition, people were more willing to to talk, tell, to, him. To, talk to him about it. Yeah. So it was genuinely 20 years after that they finally started to collect those. So how yeah. much had been lost in translation at that time, you know? Yeah. So Jay Tate, who is the director of the Space Guard Center, said, quote, had the Tunguska object hit London, every structure inside the M-25 would have been totally destroyed. So I guess we got super lucky it hit a place where nobody was living. Yeah, no shit. That's crazy. With that, we're going to take our second ad break while I appreciate how cute my cat is. We're going to come back with the not-Meteor theories, starting from least wild and going to most wild. So what does that tell you when I'm starting with the theory that a mini-black hole collided with the Earth?
1: (laughs) That's your least insane theory? That's the least insane theory. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So Keeping my perceptions in check, yeah. let's go. The idea here was that it would have
0: caused a matter-antimatter explosion between the earth and the black hole. It was proposed by some American physicists in, in 1973, of course but was Americans. widely regarded to be absurd. <laughs> Especially by modern scientists. Our second theory, second most wild. An alien aircraft... Now, there are several theories wrapped inside of this. Either the aircraft collided with something in midair and basically had the same effect as the asteroid theory. Maybe it just crashed into the ground or was shot down, which this is 1908. I would like to see the 1908 thing that has the ability to shoot down down an alien spacecraft. In 1946, the science fiction author Alexander Kazantsev wrote about a nuclear-powered alien spacecraft exploding in the atmosphere, which is likely inspired by Tunguska.
1: I think, look, okay, I you know how I am about aliens. One, I think they're totally around whether or not they visited. I think it's up for discussion. Did they help us move along? No. No. But I just... Like, well, it's kind of like, you know, there's no fragmentation there. And then, no, so what yeah. we're assuming is that, so what, the civilization that they came from came and picked up the ship within the 20, the yeah. 19 years that it took them to go check it out? But What? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and no one saw them. Yeah. <laughs> saw the first people, the first ones, but <clears throat> yeah. But when they're paying more attention to that area... They yeah. didn't pay that like whatever. Yeah. So, number 3, the most wild theory, that it was Nikola Tesla. Um I love this theory.
1: <laughs> so basically my the idea eye is twitching.
0: Okay. The idea is that a it, this was caused by a laser beam from a secret testing of a wireless energy transmitter that he created. Okay. <laughs> so apparently he was actually trying to create something like this, which like just that fact made me go, "Oh, interesting." Okay. <laughs> but um so he wrote about the destructive possibilities of this weapon in 1907 and 1908. So basically the idea here
1: is the timeline is it a added up. Yeah. Yes, it's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. Ask Gibbs. Yeah. Coincidences don't exist. But yeah, ask now, him about no, this specific. That's though. a fucking coincidence. <laughs> I just think okay. also, like scientifically speaking, like that doesn't really track. No, I don't think so. <laughs> like, <laughs> but but I'm also not a scientist. Yeah, so, I don't know. But basically, at, at the
0: end of the day. The, when you look up the Tunguska event, it is, like, you have to dig for anything that isn't a theory about an asteroid or a comet. And mainly it's theories about asteroids. So, the idea, like, the most likely scenario is that an asteroid passed into our atmosphere, exploded in midair, may or may not have passed out of our atmosphere, you know? Yeah. But... I leave it to you. (laughs) I mean, I leave it to NASA, who says this happened. (laughs) So no other event of comparable magnitude has occurred in recorded history. We now celebrate asteroid day on June 30th because of this event. Um, I mean, I say we now celebrate as if I was aware that this was the day (laughs) before (laughs) I started researching this. But... In recent years, scientists, especially astronomers, have started to take the possibility of catastrophic comet and asteroid impacts very seriously. So Yeomans, again the NASA dude, estimates that a Tunguska-sized asteroid enters Earth's atmosphere an average of once per 300 years. The current estimate is closer to once per 200 to 1,000 years. So... (laughs) There are, though, observing programs that exist to watch for near-Earth objects uh, or NEOs and discuss what to do and or what would happen in various events. So, like, Yeoman's actually
1: Armageddon for one of
0: these. Yeah. <laughs> but there are literally people who work for NASA's Jet Propulsion Center or, mm-hmm. you know, other... I'm sure they exist in Russia, too, I'm sure, because they oh, have I'm a massive sure scientific community in Russia. Per, yeah. Um, that just like keep a lookout for these guys and talk. I'm about I'm sure what, most what's country space
1: programs yeah. have some version of this. And because
0: like it's a real possibility. Yeah, look at what happened in Chelyabinsk and you know thousand people died. Yep. So, but if you're if you're finding yourself panicking about this, don't worry. They've literally got the best minds on Earth <laughs> on yep. this problem. So, I'm. I'm feeling
1: pretty safe in their hands. Yeah. Or, you know, you could just take my approaches. Well, well if, if we we it does die, happen, we die, you <laughs> well, know? it's, if we die, then, well, I guess that's no longer my problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's also, yeah. Sorry, that's my very like.
0: That
1: is it is, and it's well because I've told you that's how I view like going to the chiropractor. It's like you know I get the well like what do you do if they you know like accidentally like snap your neck and kill you? I'm like well it's no longer my problem. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Death is the least
0: the least I have to fear.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That got. Yeah. (laughs) We're just gonna. (laughs) There are
0: worse things than death. Is basically what I'm saying
1: but like expulsion yeah. <laughs> Sorry could not throw in the Harry Potter reference sorry yeah <laughs> moving on This has been the Tunguska
0: event a mysterious explosion in 1908 in Siberia Thank you for listening to today's episode of A Wild Mystery Podcast Appears, recorded and produced by Ollie and Belle.
1: Please check out all of our social media where we have additional information shared. You can find all of those links at our website at awmpa.com. We'd love to hear your feedback for our podcast, so be sure to rate and review. Tune in next week for another episode of A Wild Mystery Podcast Appears.